Okay. Right, let's go before the Lord again and ask for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day again and for this moment that you have granted us the time to go into the scriptures and learn the testimony of Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you give me ability to speak clearly and faithfully and also for your people to hear clearly and faithful, faithfully what Christ is all about, what the scriptures have always been testifying of, the one and same message, the one and same person. We thank you and we honor you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning again. This morning we are going to be in First Samuel chapter 4. First Samuel chapter 4. Good morning one and all who is joining us. I pray that you are well, whatever that means in this flesh. <laughs> but I know that all of the Lord's redeemed are well because of Christ. Christ has healed them from all their sins. Their sins will not and do not condemn them anymore. First Samuel 4, and we are going to be going through the whole chapter. And the text says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. 
there was a great slaughter in their affair of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. Verse 11. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Ophni, and Phinehas died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told him, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she had the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And that's the word of the Lord. For title, we have two titles, maybe three, maybe four. <laughs> Number one, that will carry the message, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Ichabod, the glory has departed. And number two, title, the ark of God has been captured. The ark of God has been captured. Number three, the death of the house of Eli. The death of the house of Eli. And good morning, dear sisters. I saw that you were walking all the way to church this morning. <laughs> God be praised. We'll begin where we left off from the previous message in First Samuel 3, 10 to 14, where the Lord recorded and said, 
Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. This is God appearing or introducing himself to Samuel. And he called him and said, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I'll perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And the subject of our message last week was that the sin of Eli's house shall forever not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. That is what God said in respect of Eli's house, in respect of Levi's house, on account of the sins of his two priestly sons, Phinehas and Hophni. But we noted that God did not record their sin to tell us about the reprobation of the sons of Eli. That is just a sideshow. The God of eternity does not invest much time and ink to tell us about such matters given that there were even worse sinners in Israel than the sons of Eli. This script, as any other script in the Bible, was recorded to tell the story of Christ. And in telling the story of Christ, sinners are involved. <laughs> the whole Bible is a record of Christ but through the ministration of sinners, through the works and lives of sinners. And God knew all about these things as he was recording it. He made them to be this way. But the point being to make us wise in respect of salvation. When we read these stories, we are supposed to be made wise with respect to eternal things. Okay, And in the gospel matter, the matter of law and gospel are very important to understand and to make distinction or distinctions of. Because that is the context in which salvation is presented and has been discussed in all of the Bible. You're always going to have a discussion of law versus gospel, versus grace in just about every story from Genesis to Revelation. 
And in the priesthood of Eli's sons, God was demonstrating to us by their sin, the weakness of the law in respect of things, salvation. The weakness of the law is that it was presided over or mediated by agents, by people who were like you and I. They were sinners, and as a result, they could not make anything perfect. You could not and cannot be made acceptable to God by anything that the law does. Okay? And that means also by anything that you would do of yourself. And so these guys were not just sinners in a relative or subjective sense. They were real sinners in word, deed, and thought, or in thought, word, and deed. They were sinners in every fiber of their being. And God was working with them to show what in the fullness of time would become of that covenant of which they represented. He was showing us in a prophetic way what would become of that covenant and show us also in what way we had to approach him if we were going to be perfected before him. So Eli and his sons were Levites. And what does the New Testament say about Levites? Let's go to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 11 and 12. Hebrews 7, 11 and 12, the Holy Spirit says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. So the Holy Spirit wants us to know that the law was received through the Levitical priesthood. Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. The house of Aaron being the only one that could fill the function of the high priest. You had to be a descendant of Aaron to be qualified as a high priest, not a descendant of Moses. You, have, you had to be a descendant of Aaron to be a high priest. Okay? And that tells you that Eli was a descendant of Aaron because he was a high priest. So that tells you again that Eli is a mediator of the law. That's how you're supposed to read this story. And the Holy Spirit says, if perfection, if righteousness, if sanctification, holiness of a sinner like you and I were possible through the Levitical 
priesthood was possible through your own obedience, was possible through the blood of bulls and gods. What need was there to destroy Eli's house and his sons? What need was there to pronounce an eternal judgment on Levi and say, Levi shall not ever have a priest standing, ministering before God. No old man shall ever be found in Eli's house. And in destroying the house of Levi, the house of Eli, God said this in 1 Samuel 2.35. 1 Samuel 2.35. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. So, God did not just destroy the house of Eli. He says, I'm going to raise another one. A better priesthood. A faithful priesthood. To replace the Levitical priesthood. He would raise not a series or another lineage of priests. As was the case under the law but would have just one faithful priest. God did not at this time say from which tribe because this was a prophetic statement with details to be filled in later on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> but the Hebrews writer commenting on the weakness and end of the law and its priesthood said, there was need for there to arise of another priest who was called not according to the order of Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek. So the fact that God raised another priesthood in Christ means the law miserably failed to perfect anyone. The very Ten Commandments that people love to quote and say, these are the moral law, are the very ones that could not perfect a sinner. I don't know what people use for hearing and understanding. They are the Ten Commandments. And this new priest does not trace his lineage or his priesthood to the Levites. He is of a different order and origin, the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Melchizedek was the priesthood that had the power of an endless life. And that's what you and I need. We need a priest that ever lives to make intercession for us. But what happens when this new priesthood shows up? 
still in Hebrews 7, verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. When the priesthood has been changed, there of necessity must be a change of law. Yeah? When the presidency changes from Republican to Democrat, they take out all the furniture in the White House, new carpet, new everything. It's not that it's old. <laughs> Much of that is still as brand new as the day that it was installed. But they come in and say, oh, I don't like those drapes. Take them off. I don't want the carpet. Take off the... <laughs> exactly right. Because the presidency has changed. When the priesthood has been changed, they are of necessity, says the Holy Spirit. There must be, there must be a change of law. The change of how you approach God. A change of how you are considered as righteous. And this verse, unfortunately, seems to be missing in the Bibles of the majority of people who claim that the redeemed are still under the law as their rule of life. I do not know, again, how they read. There must be a change of law when the priesthood has changed because Christ Jesus is the priesthood of a different covenant. But this is what is being said. The Levites were priests over the old covenant of the law, that is the Ten Commandments, we say that the Ten Commandments are the foundational doc document. They are the constitution of what is called the law on Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the two tablets of stone. Those are what is called the covenant of the law. A lot of people don't know that. These are the founding documents of the institution of the law and everything that comes with it, okay? But the writer of Hebrews says, their contract expired. They were retired. It was a forced retirement. God removed that covenant, but not arbitrarily, but by way of Fulfillment by Christ. Christ said every jot and tittle of the law would not pass away until it has been fulfilled. Now, the majority of the people who say, yes, we are agreed. The Levites were weak. They were sinners. Give them some social security benefits <laughs> put them on some pension plan. We now have Jesus, a better priesthood over the same commandments of the law. I'm going to say this again so that you hear what I'm saying. The majority of the people in the church who say, we agree, 
that the law was weak because of its priesthood. And we agree that we now have a better priest in the person of Jesus, but over the same commandments. Over the same commandments of Moses. Is that what verse 12 of Hebrews 7 is saying? Is Jesus the mediator of the law of Moses? No, he is not. The text says, and very clearly, where there's a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. So the law has been changed by the appearance of Christ. And that is not an anti-law idea. It's not an antinomian idea. This is the gospel of God. The redeemed are under the law of faith. They are not under the law of works because that's what Moses was all about. Miss Anna, can you sit down? So God preached this with Eli and his house and said, the iniquity of the house of Eli shall not be atoned for forever. And the point being, the law shall not be the basis of his people's approach to him. Rather, his people shall approach him on the basis of his new and higher priesthood and on the basis of the law of faith. You have to understand these arguments because these are the things that people are always coming and accusing and arguing and saying the Westminster Confession of Faith says this and that and because John Owen said this and John Calvin said this, those are useless people to me. To be honest, they don't serve me in any way. What does God say? God says the priesthood of the law has changed. And also that law, the law that comes with it also has changed. So Jesus was not given to give the law a second chance, a salvation, or to resurrect the old covenant. Romans 8 says he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end of the law. Yeah? Many of the old movies said what at the end of the show. When the movie came to an end, they would have what? It would say the end. <laughs> and when that showed up on the screen, guess what? Everybody knew that it was time to go home. The end. The appearance of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ was the end of the show, of the movie, of the old covenant. That was the end of Moses. Also, the New Testament tells us that the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. And that which is not of faith 
cannot please God. And that means your doing of the law could never, ever please God. It was Christ's doing of the law that pleased God. You and I cannot please God by law-keeping because we could never give the law what it actually demands of us, which is perfection. Okay? So that is a very hard saying for a lot of people, religious people, to swallow because they think that when we say these things, we are promoting lawlessness. That's not what God is saying at all. He is actually promoting righteousness because the law always condemns you. You're always going to have an unclean conscience before God because you're going to be stumbling every day. Yeah? So that will take us to our text. Let us go to our text in First Samuel 4 and see if our theological reasoning is consistent with God's truth. Verse 1 of First Samuel 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped in Afek. So Samuel was now the prophet of Israel, without any doubt. God was speaking to him, was speaking to his people through him. And Israel went out to war against their arch enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines were Canaanites, and they seemed to be technologically more advanced than Israel, especially in the manner or matter of working metals and weapons of war. First Samuel 13, 19-21. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the fox, and the axes, and to set the points of the gods. Those were tools of the day. And the currency of the day was a pim. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but it was acceptable payment. It seemed like the Philistines taught a lot of the STEM subjects than did the Israelites. <laughs> they had the science and technology, engineering and mathematics figured out at the time. These was a powerful nation. The Philistines were a powerful nation. But the Philistines were a constant threat and trouble to Israel. So wars were 
constantly breaking out between these two nations. But, but remember that these are all gospel stories. And if we do not treat them as such, then the Philistines will just be any other nation that fought against another, some other nation. And we still have wars going on. And so this story would not be anything useful to us. But verse 2 of 1 Samuel 4 says, Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. So Israel got a beating. They suffered a humiliating defeat in the hands of the Philistines. About 4,000 men were killed. Verse 3. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Did you hear the question? They did not say, Why did the Philistines defeat us? They did not ascribe their defeat to the power of the Philistines, but to God. God strengthened the hands of the enemies of his people. And that is an acknowledgement of God's absolute sovereignty, both in victory and defeat. Victory and defeat are orchestrated by the same God. God will have a seemingly great military power be humbled, be defeated by some lesser country who is fighting with sticks and shovels. Because God is the one fighting. It is God who gives victory and it is him who gives defeat. So Israel said, it is the Lord who has caused our defeat and they did not sin by ascribing their defeat to God. But a lot of people say, oh, you can't say that God is the author of evil because that's sinful. It was evil for Israel to be defeated, <laughs> right? 4,000 men were killed and very soon we're going to find that more than 30,000 more were slaughtered by the same Philistines. It is the Lord who caused our defeat. Could we in our theology say the same? It is God who has brought us all the unpleasant things in our lives. But for a purpose, God does not just cause defeat without reason. Sin did not just come without reason. There was a higher purpose. There's a developing testimony of Christ that has to happen. And for that reason, Israel has to be defeated. And many do not know this God of the Bible. That's why there's too much devil worship. A lot of ascribing things to the devil casting out the devil, 
binding the devil, and all such foolishness. It is actually idolatry. It's a denial of the sovereignty of the true God. So what was their suggestion? They said, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They said, if we could just bring the ark of covenant of our God to the battlefield against the Philistines, that should spell their end. The ark will save us from the hand of our enemies. Yes. And no. And we will learn shortly. Verse 4. So the people went, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. The ark of the covenant represented the presence of God among them. The God who dwelled between the cherubim. That is Christ Jesus. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, as priests of God, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So the two sons of Levi, as the mediators of the law, are they who brought the ark of God to the battlefield. And when the ark, verse 5, and when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. They made a loud war cry that had the Philistines very scared. Verse 6. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines quickly understood the excitement that was coming from the camp of Israel. Verse 7. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp, and they said, War to us, for such a thing has never happened before. And that is the right response. If the Lord would and should show his presence in the camp of men, Men and women will pronounce a war unto themselves and say war to us. And war is judgment. It's not saying, wow, that's cool. No, there's no one who's saying, wow, that's cool. When Jesus shows up, it's war to us. We are ruined. That is a judgment. We are so undone. And what are we going to do? How shall we escape from the wrath to come. Also, the Philistines say such a thing has never happened before. And that is another gospel installment through the mouths of the Philistines 
such a thing has never happened before that God would bring his glorious presence in the place of sinners. Never happened before. The Philistines were Gentiles, and that means us according to the flesh. At that time, God was not talking to Gentiles in the manner that he was talking to Israel. God has come into the camp of men that is speaking anticipatively of the incarnation of Christ. God has come into the camp of men. War to us, verse 8. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So you are given the identity of these gods. Of course, by the Gentiles, according to their theology of the day. But they are still telling the truth. Because they say, these are the gods that caused trouble in Egypt. <laughs> they killed a lot of people, but also in that, they delivered their people from the hands of Pharaoh. Woe to us, they said, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? The Philistines had a pantheon of gods, and they thought the God of Israel was just some other more powerful God among the many other gods. But they asked the right question. They asked the right question. If this God is this powerful as we have had from the testimony of Egypt, who shall deliver us from his hands? If he is that Powerful. Who shall deliver us from him? Who shall save us? And that to say, salvation requires more than what you can do to be saved. It is too late for anyone to ask for what they can do to be saved. There's nothing that a sinner can do to be saved. There is nothing that a sinner can do to be saved. And someone will come and clip just this verse, this line that I just said, and say, do you hear what he said? He said, there's nothing that a sinner can do to be saved. Yes, there's nothing that a sinner can do to be saved. Not from this God. This seemingly confuses people because they have not had Proper gospel teaching. Repent and believe is not something that you do. It is caused by God. Repent and believe assume that salvation is already there. That God has already done something about your sin. Because if salvation is not there, what are you repenting to? What are you believing? Your repentance and faith will mean nothing, won't do you any good 
because it does not make payment for your sins before this God. Your sin need payment or needs payment. So repent and believe implies there was already a payment or there is already a payment made a satisfaction made a savior crucified and a people justified by his death because you repent from something to something. So we repent to Christ, to the salvation that is in Christ, to the mediation, to the priesthood of Christ, to the blood of Christ, which things already came before we showed up. So the Philistines asked and said, who shall deliver us from this God? And Paul, battling with his sin, Apostle Paul, which was also in the picture of the Philistines. Because the Philistines are not just some enemy of Israel in the flesh. They represent a gospel testimony of sin. And so they're saying, who shall deliver us? Who shall deliver us? And Paul says, all wretched men, that's Romans 7, 24. All wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? In all the laboring that Paul has done in Romans 7 about his sin and his relation to the law, he has discovered that the law is not his friend <laughs> because the very things that he wants to do, he finds a different law in the members of his flesh, doing things that are contrary to what he would love to do according to his mind, according to righteousness. So he has come to this conclusion, I am a wretched man, and I need deliverance. But then, who shall deliver me? And see also that he says, all wretched men that I am, not all wretched men that I used to be that I am as I am writing Romans 7. And he says, my problem, it seems requires more than what I should do to be delivered from this body of death. I've gone past wanting to do stuff. I've done stuff. Read Philippians 3, you hear my testimony. I thought my righteousness before the law was perfect. I've done all the doing stuff. But I still see this wretched man. In me, this body of death, I still need to be delivered from it. And it requires more than stopping sin to be saved. It needs more than, oh, you do the moral law to be saved. He says, my situation, my conundrum requires a person. We've gone beyond commandments. 
I need a person. I need a who person. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? It doesn't say, what shall I do to be delivered from this body of death? Like, no, no, no. I need a person. Give me a person. And the Philistines say, who shall deliver us from this God of Israel? In other words, in other words, the sinner needs a person to save them from God. They need a person. A person to stand before them, to intercede for them to speak peace by his intercession. And Paul found his person, his who person, and said what? Romans 7.25. I thank God. <laughs> That's what you have to begin your statement with. When you have found the person, you begin by thanking God. Oh, I thank God. For what? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the end of his conversation. I thank God for Christ Jesus. I found my person. I found my person who answers to all the problems that I have with the Philistines. Who answers the problems of my sin. So then, I have a resolution of my problem. With the mind, I myself serve the law of God. With my mind, I want to be righteous. With my mind, every day I want to be righteous. But with the flesh, that is my day-to-day -day reality. Guess what? It's just a law of sin. My day-to-day -day reality, I'm always falling short. But I make a resolution every morning. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be righteous. But by, before they finish the beggars or whatever they bring in the canteen at work, I've already sinned 500 times. So Paul's dilemma was found a solution in the person called Jesus Christ. He is the answer to your sin problem, to your law problem. Both those are the two things. Sin and law produce death. So they cause you a serious conundrum. And he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ. That is the answer. And that is a complete answer. Jesus Christ is the answer to all matters of salvation. Okay? The Philistines' question shall be answered later in the text of 1 Samuel, but not in an obvious way as Paul did it, but it's there. It is the subject of the next message. But God must answer that question for a sinner, or else there's no hope for anyone. But the Philistines say to their comrades in arms, verse 9, going back to First Samuel 4, be strong. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you, 
conduct yourselves like men and fight. The Philistines realize that if they lose the battle, they will become servants to the Hebrews. That's how things worked. So they exhorted each other to fight valiantly. And the theological point being captured in Romans 6 verse 16, where Paul said, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Or the redeemed obey Christ by faith, leading to righteousness, leading to life. If you are under the power of the Philistines, your obedience is unto death because that's the power of sin. Yeah? So that is the theological exhortation coming by way of the Philistines. Verse 10 of 1 Samuel 10, of 1 Samuel 4, sorry. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. So the Philistines fought hard and defeated Israel. 30,000 foot soldiers were killed in one day. That was a serious massacre. Like 30,000 men gone. And remember, they had also lost 4,000 soldiers in the first battle. So there was a great slaughter. And of those who survived, every man fled to his tent with a lot of boo-boos <laughs> and in utter disbelief of what had just happened. They could not believe their defeat. But what else happened in this defeat? Verse 11. Also, or also the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The ark of God was captured. And also the two sons of Eli were captured with it. Is that what the text says? No. The sons of Eli were not just captured. They were killed. Who killed them? It was the Philistines. No. Who killed the sons of Eli? What did God say he would do to the house of Eli? Did he not say in 1 Samuel 2.25 that the sons of Eli would not repent, did not heed the voice of the father because God wanted to kill them? And he came and said, oh, I'm going to carry out everything. I am going to carry out, not the Philistines. I am going to carry out everything that I said will happen to the house of Eli. So it's God who put them to death. In other words, the Philistines 
were doing God's bidding. And yet, he takes responsibility and says, I killed them through the hand of the Philistines. But guess what? The Philistines are also responsible for killing my people. I made them to destroy my people, to kill my people, but they are also guilty. That's Isaiah 10 teaching. Yeah. So the ark of God was captured in the battle against the Philistines. And how is that even possible? How is it that the ark of the Lord of hosts would be captured by a sinful people who did not know how to handle it? Was the ark powerless to save itself from the hands of the Philistines? Was the ark of God actually captured? Was it captured? Or that it submitted itself to be captured by the Philistines? Because for the ark to be captured, it would mean that God had been overpowered by the Philistines. That's the only way to catch the ark, to capture it. Do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> Who is it that was represented by the ark? It is Christ. So in the seeming defeat of Israel, a picture of the Lord Jesus being captured even by these Gentiles, the heralds and pilots, <laughs> was in view. The ark of God has been captured. Hear the testimony of the Lord Jesus about his own capture. John 10. Beginning at verse 17, verse 17 and 18. The Lord said, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of myself, of my own accord. I have power. To lay it down and have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Before I make commentary, let's go to the conversation between Pilate and Jesus in John 19, beginning at verse 10. This is the continuing trial of the Lord Jesus before the cross, and he is with Pilate. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to set you free? Pilate thinks he has power over the ark of God. As did the Philistines when they captured it. The Philistines thought, oh man, we got the ark of God. Then here Jesus answer, verse 11, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. 
Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The Philistines were given power by God to capture the ark, as Jesus said to Pilate. You could have no power over me, no power at all against me, unless it had been given from above. The Lord Jesus gave himself to be captured. He submitted to their arrest. If he wanted not to be arrested, he would have just walked past through them and no one would have handled him. He submitted himself, even to the point of death. So no man had power to kill him as the Philistines had no power over the ark of God. Even though they captured it. As we shall see. Because the ark is going to cause them a lot of trouble. And that is also saying. Theologically. There's none who has power over you. Unless it has been given them from above. When you get in trouble. With people. You're traveling. Airport. Authorities and stuff. Be patient. They have no power. They think they do. Just be patient. Just be polite. Just wait and see what God does. They have no power. Just be patient. And just see what the Lord does. I'm not kidding you. These people of the world think they have power. They have nothing. God alone has power. Okay? It doesn't matter if they know it or they don't. The Philistines had no clue it was God who handed them the defeat of his own people. They thought they fought so hard. <laughs> yeah, they thought they had very good equipment. But it is God who handed them the defeat of Israel. Israel, okay? So when the ark of the Lord is captured, what happens? The sons of Eli also die. Phinehas and Hophni in their priesthood and those who kept and carried the ark must come to an end because they were those appointed to carry the ark. They also died. And that you say, the law must come to an end when Christ has been captured by the Philistines on account of the sins of his people. The Philistines represented sin and its effect, the uncircumcision of the flesh. That is why they were always a thorn on the side of Israel for hundreds of years. They were always fighting the Philistines. They would have rest and peace for 10 years, 15, 20 years, 50 years, and then war would break again. They were always on the side and that is the matter of sin. You may think you've overcome sin for two months, for six months, for one year, but wait for next year. <laughs> okay? They annoyed. They fought. They aggravated God's people for hundreds of years. Always a pain on the side. Now, let's hear on the reporting of the battle. Verse 12 of First Samuel 4. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day 
and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So a messenger came from the battlefield with some news. Not good news as was preached by his torn clothes and dirt on his head. There's a man who was at the battlefield. They witnessed the battlefield. They escaped to go and declare the news of what happened on the battlefield. That is the picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is he who comes and declares the news of what actually happened on the battlefield when the ark of God was captured. When Christ died, what really happened there? There has to be a man that is sent out. Yeah? Verse 18. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. So Eli was very concerned about the ark of God. His heart trembled. So we are looking at the gospel from the vantage point of the end of the law. We are looking at the gospel from the vantage point of the law. Because there are many vantage points of the gospel. Okay? So this is the side of Eli. This is the side of the priesthood of the law as they are hearing the news. To them, that's not good news. Hear this. So Eli was very concerned about the ark of God. His heart trembled, the text said. And when the news came to the city, all of Israel were very jubilant. They were very happy. No. Because there was no good news in the capture of that ark at this point. And the defeat of their army. But the ark shall come later. Not in this story, but the ark shall come later. And there's going to be jubilation when the ark of God is recovered back to Shiloh. And the picture of the messenger from the battlefield is extremely important in the understanding and teaching and believing of what is the gospel. The messenger from the battlefield is in the picture of the Holy Spirit, also in the picture of a preacher. The Holy Spirit is a preacher of Christ. Preacher of the events of the battle, whether good or bad, the battle between Israel and the Philistines. What happened? The preacher is a messenger to preach the good news of what happened already on the battlefield. The messenger did not come back home looking for more weapons, coming to get some more supplies, Gatorade and Doritos for the military, to see if they could turn the tide on the wall. No, he came to deliver the news of the final outcome of that battle. And what happened on that battle 
Israel got slaughtered. The Philistines won. It's bad news for Israel. The ark of God was captured. That was his sermon. <laughs> and the people cried out to the heavens because there was no good news in that. Because they have received good news before. And that is the matter of the gospel. The gospel on the B side of things, on the B side of the reporting of the story as it continues to unfold, the story does not end here. So we are getting nuggets, pieces that we need to work out what's going to happen next. The gospel is good news of not what you do with Jesus by faith. It is a declaration, a proclamation of what happened on the battlefield of sin against the Philistines when he was captured and sentenced to be crucified. Jesus was arrested, handcuffed. He was sentenced to die, and he was crucified. That was the battle. The whole transaction was the battlefield that concluded in his resurrection. So, this is what the Bible says in the matter of Christ. In Isaiah 52, let's go to Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is a proclamation of victory. The Benjamite in our story did not have beautiful feet at this point of the conversation. He brought the news of death and defeat. But Christ Jesus, on the side B of things, is he who has brought the glad tidings of good things. Of the good news has proclaimed peace for us with God. Proclaims, declares salvation as already finished. That is gospel preaching, Isaiah 52, 7. I need you to understand this. Because people will miss the point. This is what Isaiah 52 is saying and what I am trying to communicate. The gospel is not a conditional message with things that you have to do to make it good news. It is a declaration, a proclamation, 
a broadcast like when you have a newsreader sit on their desk, on their news desk, and proclaim the events of the day. This is what happened. Of something that has already taken place. And what has already taken place is Jesus and the cross. And how by that cross, by that death, by that battle, he established, he obtained peace, reconciliation, justification, salvation for his people. That's what he obtained in that battle. Your reconciliation your justification before God does not come from you believing or reading the news. You believe the news that is coming from the battlefield, from the battle that happened some 2,000 years ago. And that to say, conditioning salvation on faith of the sinner is too late in the matter of things salvation. That's too late. It's way late in the whole transaction. The transaction already happened. As the writer of Hebrews says, he did it once for all time, never to be repeated. The transaction sealed and signed is done. So what does faith do in the matter of hearing the news? Faith hears and believes and rejoices in the news. Faith is there for you to see the truth of it and rejoice in it. Like, wow, I thank God through Jesus Christ that this is what has already happened for me. Your faith does not cause the news. It does not make the news to be good news. The good news is the good news already. Faith sees that. It believes that. It rejoices in that. We are a long ways from Romans 10, no, Romans series, because I want to expand more on this in Romans 10. But this point must be made even in preparation for that, because when you get to Romans 10, the same issue, the same matter is taught without the proper context of war. The gospel is presented as a message that is coming out of a battle, out of a warring situation. That is the context of the gospel. It is not just some good news, good news. No, no, no. The context is war. Paul quoted Isaiah 52 verse 7 in Romans 10. In verse 14 and 15. Let's go there. Romans 10, 14 and 15. Paul said, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall Israel hear about what happened on the battlefield without the Benjamite 
escaping and coming to tell them. What is the purpose of the preacher? Is it to cause or change the outcome of the battlefield events? No. Nope. Is it to cause the justification of sinners by his preaching? No. Nope. A preacher does not cause your justification. They are just one that has been picked out by God to tell you of what happened on the battlefield. Okay? And the preacher goes to God's people. And God's people will hear because the sheep will hear. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Verse 15. The Benjamite was a preacher who was sent back to Israel to report on the events of the battle. And this is not the only story in the Old Testament. I think we're going to find another story in the book of 1st or 2nd Samuel with exactly the same um, presentation in the book of Isaiah. I think I know of at least two or three other places. When we get to Romans 10, I'm going to put them all together and reinforce my argument. How shall they preach unless they are sent? The message from the Benjamite was the message of either victory or defeat. That's what he came to declare. As it is written, now Paul goes to Isaiah 52, 7, and says, how beautiful. Now Paul is talking gospel, so he's rejoicing in the victory of the gospel of Christ and says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. He did not quote the whole text, but this is obviously where he got it from. And he understood the context also. The preacher declares the gospel of peace, the glad tidings of what Christ accomplished. Otherwise, those at home who did not go to the battle would not know. We are the ones who were left at home. And without God raising a preacher, we would not know what Christ did for us. So we have to make proper distinctions. You're not saved here today and then saved again tomorrow when you hear a different and better preacher and then saved again five years from now when you hear yet another good preacher. doesn't work like that. The one good preacher who saved you is Christ. <laughs> it's done. Done, 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 done. Also remember, context here. In the time of Paul, in the time of the Philistines, they did not have <coughs> cell phones. They did not have cell phones to text from the battlefield. So someone had to go home. Someone had to run. And you could tell from the testimony of the Bible whether one had good news or not by the manner in which they were coming, the manner in which they were running even. Is there in the text? I did not want to go there because I had a whole lot of other things to talk about in today's message. Okay, but you hear it in the next message. So they did not have cell phones. So one had to go. And those who came with the good news, they were said to have beautiful feet, okay? But we need to emphasize that 
their knowing of the victory was not and is not the cause of the victory. Their knowing of the victory is for them to be glad, is for them to be happy, to rejoice in the salvation which was already won on their behalf. So those who use this text of Romans 10 to say gospel preaching is what brings a sinner to justification or into justification when they hear certain propositions do not understand the context of the gospel or of war in this regard. The gospel preacher is just a newsreader sent by God to his people to proclaim to them what Christ made them or has made them to be before God. He made them saved. He saved them. He did not make them savable. Because justification at faith implies that Jesus won the battle, but he did not actually save you. He made you savable until you had some message from a preacher. And then, only then, are you saved. No, that's not true. That cannot be true. <laughs> that cannot be true. That's not how the battle is won. That's not how the battle is fought. Jesus made all the elect perfect. He perfected, perfected them forever. That's Hebrews teaching. He made them righteous. He did not make it possible for them to be righteous. He made them righteous. He made them accepted. We have been accepted in the beloved. That's Ephesians teaching. He justified them because he made satisfaction for their sins. He made them holy by his blood. He adopted all of his people by the offering of himself. This is what he accomplished. That is what is on the news desk of the Holy Spirit. Okay? <laughs> Verse 14. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. So essentially to say, Eli was at the end of his life. He was old. Verse 16. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, that's Eli, what happened, my son? Do you hear the conversation in the light of what I just discussed? The Benjamite says, I came from the battlefield today, and Eli wants to know what happened on the battlefield. He says, son, preach to me the events of the battlefield. Preach to me the events of the gospel, because all the news is made there on the battlefield. In answering Eli's question of what happened, my son, preachers of today will say, your two sons are at good Samaritan hospital. And so many, and so are many of our soldiers. The doctors say they should be okay. Once the bleeding is stopped, 
and they can come back to ministry. No, not this preacher. Hear this preacher, verse 17. So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, number one. And number two, there's been a great slaughter among the people. And number three, also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And number five, and the ark of God has been captured. Many people have died, including the two sons of Eli, and also the ark of God has been captured. That is what happened when the Lord was captured as the ark of God. He did not just serve his people. He also sealed the condemnation of many. Christ, remember, is the mediator between death and life, between justification and condemnation, because those are two sides of the same coin. They happen together. We have talked about this before. Israel leaving Egypt, Israel was delivered, was saved, and Egypt was destroyed. Okay? So the two sons of Eli are dead. The covenant of the law is dead. Let's continue to see if we are thinking correctly. Verse 18. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. See, the text does not say Eli fell off backward because of the death of his two sons. No. It was when he heard about the capture of the Ark of the Covenant of God. Eli already knew that his sons were going to die because God told him. Right? Samuel told that to Eli. And Eli said in response, it is the Lord let him do whatever is right in his own sight. When the news of the capture of the ark of God came to him, he fell and died. Why? Because when Christ is captured to be put to death, the law must come to its end. That is why Eli fell off the seat backward to say the end of his ministry. He fell off from his seat as the high priest of the law and died. I'm telling you, God put this detail for a reason. <laughs> he fell off, I don't know what kind of seat that was. If he was living in 21st century America, someone was going to get sued for making a bed seat. <laughs> he fell off. <laughs> from his seat as the high priest of the law and died signaling the end of the ministry of Eli and his house as God has said would happen. Hear this again. The text says, Eli was old 
number one, number two, and he was heavy. For the man was old and heavy. Why? We cannot understand that apart from understanding what he represented. Hebrews 8 and 13. The writer of Hebrews says, In that he says a new covenant. He has made the first absolute. Now, what is becoming absolute and growing old is ready to do what? To vanish away. Eli was old. He was ready to vanish away. The law was old and decaying and ready to fall off the chair as did Eli and died. So those who say the law is the rule of life are not telling the truth because they don't have anyone sitting on the chair of Eli. <laughs> that which was growing old as Eli became absolute and vanished away. The law was heavy too. What did Peter say at the Jerusalem Council? We want to bring heavy burdens on these people that the burdens which ourselves and our fathers could not even carry. Heavy burdens. The law is heavy. The yoke of the law is heavy because you have to pull a lot of heavy things. It brings heavy burdens of God's people and Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. He said, you, you are the ones who put heavy burdens on God's people that you don't even lift up with one of your fingers. Heavy burdens. And then Jesus came and said, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. His burden is what? Is light. Weary and heavy laden because of sin and because of the law. Both the power of sin is in the law. The law does not give you freedom. It gives you a burden to carry. Christ alone gives rest. He is the one who said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Christ alone sets free. Okay? Verse 19 of First Samuel 4. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. When Eli's daughter-in-law was pregnant, had the news. She immediately went into labor. 
she did not need any oxytocin to be induced to go into labor. She had no time for an epidural, or they didn't have any. She bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her suddenly. So what did she hear? She had the news. She had the news that the ark of God had been captured. That her father-in-law, Eli, and her husband, Phineas, were dead. And she could not take it. How lucky that she happened to be pregnant when all these things were to take place. Just so lucky. No, not at all. This was God's script. This was all God's doing. Her pregnancy was timed by God to make commentary of the end of the law. Let us hear. Verse 20. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. The midwives, those are the women who were around her, they tried to comfort her in a pain and loss of her husband and father-in-law with the news of the birth of her son. But she did not answer them or had regard to their statement or their gospel. It was not encouraging anything to her. She had her own commentary of the events. She had to say something about the event. Then she, with the little ability, little bit of life that was left in her, she made a pronouncement. She named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. The glory of God departed from Israel when the Christ showed up. It was crucified. And her father-in-law and her husband died the end of the law. And she named her son Ichabod and that is the title of a message. And this, as I said, as for preaching the gospel. Ichabod, because the ark of God had been captured. Number two, because of her father-in-law and her husband had died. You see, these events happen at the same time. The capture of the ark of God, and the end of the law, the end of the ministry of Eli's house. They happen at the same time. They are concurrent events. The glory has departed from Israel. What 
glory did Israel have? It was the glory of the law. It was the glory of Mount Sinai. It was the glory of the Ten Commandments. The passing of that glory was preached in the capturing of the ark and the death of Eli and his sons. The passing of that glory was preached in the death of John the Baptist, who was a Levite, whose father was Zechariah the high priest, in the beheading of John the Baptist. That is the glory of the law departing. The glory of the law was preached in its departure on the Mount of Transfiguration when the true glory of God was shining in the person of Christ and Elijah and Moses were overshadowed. The glory of Elijah and Moses was overshadowed by the glory of Christ. Christ must stand alone. Christ must stand alone. Ichabod, the glory of the law, has gone. Let's hear Paul making commentary, 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 13. Paul is making a contrast between the covenant of Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and the New Testament, the ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of life. I'm going to say this again, because people are very stubborn in their traditions. The covenant of Mount Sinai are the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I'm going to be saying this until I die, because people can't hear. And this is what Paul says of them. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones. What was that? What was written and engraved on the two tablets of stone? It was the Ten Commandments. It was glorious. It had glory. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was remaining forever. No. When Moses would go to Mount Sinai to talk to God, he would have some of that glory of God on him and his face would be shining that Moses had to cover his face. I don't know for how long, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, and then it would slowly just pass away and Moses would become Moses and God was preaching. It's there in the text, it's in Exodus 33, I believe. Which glory was passing away? Is the ministry of death, it had glory, but the glory was what? It was passing away. 
You will not hear this from much of reformed preachers. They don't want the glory of the Ten Commandments to pass away. They won't preach this. They will not hear them say, the law is the ministry of death and condemnation. That is not the message. But this is God's message. That was the ministry of death. And it had glory, and the glory was passing away. Now, in comparison, there is the ministry that re replaces it. And this remains, verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, yes, it had glory. The commandments of the law are good. They're righteous. They're holy. They have glory. But they were passing away. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. The ministry of righteousness is the ministry of Christ. It exceeds much more the glory of the law. Verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Yes, the law was glorious, but when you compare it to the glory of Christ, it's almost like it did nothing. <laughs> for if what is passing away was glorious, what is passing away was glorious. And this is where a lot of preachers fail to make the connections. Eli, we are told, was old, heavy, and passing away, and they can't make the translation from Rome from 2 Corinthians 3 to the person of Eli. They want God to tell them that again. I'm like, he has already said it. It's there in the text. If what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. And that's why people get offended at me. Come and call me an antinomian. And I keep coming back with the same message over and over. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Moses had to veil himself. And God was saying, was preaching to because even today, the same veil remains on the heart of those who claim to be under the law. That's, why, that's how the text ends. The same veil. Because that veil that causes people not to see the beauty of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, is still on their hearts. Yes, they are religious. Yes, they know the doctrines of grace, but they still have not yet seen Christ because that veil is removed in Christ. And when it has been removed in Christ, there's no way that you're going to say, oh, the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. There's no way. Can't say that. So Eli and his sons represented the ministry of death and condemnation. And God said, he swore by himself that he was going to bring it to an end. 
and say, there shall not be an old man left in the house of Eli's father, which is Levi, in the house of Eli, Eli and his two sons, even the daughter-in-law. And this ministry that Eli, that the Levites represented, had glory. But it was a glory that was inferior, and it was passing away. And it passed away by a certain event. Make a point about that. It passed away because of a certain event. And in the Old Testament was the capture of the ark of God, which was in the picture of the Lord Jesus and his crucifixion. And the Lord in the New Testament, when he was captured, he enacted the new covenant in his blood. That's what he said. He was going to enact a new covenant in his blood for the remission of the sins of his people. And there could not be two covenants standing. There could not be two high priests. The high priests of the law and the high priests of the new covenant. Both trying to get you to approach God. It can't happen. So one had to be retired, one had to die. Eli and his sons had to die, Ichabod. So when the Lord Jesus was being tried by the priesthood of the law, I'm going to give you some extra nugget for free. This is what happened. Let's go to Mark 14. from verse 60 to 64. So the Lord Jesus, the ark of God has been captured and he is being interrogated by the priesthood of Israel. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus is claiming deity because in the Old Testament they understood exactly that this is how God was going to show up. And Jesus says, I am he. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have had the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death for the ark of God to be captured by the Philistines. But why did the high priest, the Levite, mediator of the law, tear his garments? He said, well, he has committed blasphemy. But why did God record it? What did the law say? Let's go to Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21, 10 to 12. He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, 
shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. Nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his, God's, of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. The high priest shall not uncover his head or tear his garments. So why <laughs> did the high priest tear his garments when the ark of God was captured? The high priest tearing his clothes was announcing the end of his own priesthood. Because God said, you could not do that, you cannot do that. When you do that, you're just getting yourself fired from the ministry. It is signaling the end of the priesthood of the law because the new priesthood in Christ was being established because Christ is going on the cross as the new high priest for the cleansing of sin. The priesthood was there for the cleansing of sin. Okay? They are the people who represented the sinners before God in the matter of purification of sin. So Christ is the new priest, and he is going on the cross to make purification of sin. And there could not be two priesthood. One had to tear its clothes and say, I'm done. I'm done. Let this one who is more qualified go and do the work. Okay? Christ Jesus, who had the eternal priesthood, did not tear his own garments on the cross. What did the scriptures say? They divided his garments. They did not tear them. They divided them. Because he is the high priest who remains. So what are we saying? <laughs> We're saying that much of the traditions of men around the law and the gospel are not correct. Why? Because they are not really working the word of God to come to their positions. They're just carrying over the traditions so as to be accepted by other men. Okay? We don't do that. God has been very consistent in story after story to present to us the truth of what would become of the ministry of the law and its glory, its weaknesses, and what would replace it. He represented this in stories, in pictures, of which we find Eli and his sons and his daughter-in-law giving testimony by their death. And Ichabod being born, Ichabod being born as a memorial, as the monument to bear witness to the end of the ministry of the law because a better priesthood in Christ was on its way. And even with that, even in our time, we have a lot of churches that we could print a big sign that says Ichabod and post it, okay, at the entrance. Because there's no gospel there that is being talked about. 
That's the majority of the church is it's Ichabod. The glory even of Christ has departed from them. There's no gospel. There's a lot of ministry so-called. There's a lot of busyness. People are busy. There's a lot of projects, building expansions, YMCA, collecting money for these projects. We're going to go across the world to preach the gospel. So they raise the money. You have people who come and dedicate themselves to doing these projects and help these people in the dark places of the world. But they themselves don't know the gospel. They come back, they prepare their PowerPoints, the pictures and videos of the boreholes that they drilled and all the stuff that they've been doing. Still a cupboard where the testimony of the high priest, Christ Jesus, is not there. They don't know it. They're not preaching it. They're not declaring the news of what happened on the battlefield. Okay? So gospel preaching is a declaration of the events of the battlefield. What happened when Christ encountered the Philistines by way of sin. Do not think at all that the Philistines were able to do anything to the ark of God. If you keep, if you want to read ahead of me, go and read and see what trouble <laughs> the ark of God caused. It killed so many people, everybody did not even want to have it. Okay, but then there's a message, wonderful message that comes out of that. But this is what we need to have for understanding as we close this message. We have to hear what Eli's daughter-in-law said. The glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from the ministry of the law. For the ark of God has been captured. For Christ has been given over to death. That is the reason. That is the event. Christ is he who divides the old from the new. Okay? Amen. We are done. I did not, I forgot to turn my timer on and that affects how I distribute my time between things, statements and expanding or not expanding. But God be praised for his truth. Next week we are back in Romans, Romans chapter 5 from verse 12 and following. We're going to be working the testimony of Adam and that means a lot of Old Testament again. We're going to have to go back to Adam. And the Lord will show us some wonderful things about the gospel from his story. Okay? God be praised. Amen. Have a good day.